John 17, let us give our attention to the word of the living God. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, But I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Gracious God of heaven, we come to a heavenly prayer by our heavenly high priest, and how we seek the divine help for the minister to preach up such a blessed word as this, such a blessed look into the heart of heaven itself, where our Savior even now pleads for his people. 
O gracious Father, we pray that the word of God would be living and active now, that it would penetrate our hearts and it would draw our affections uh, heavenward, that we would long for the things Christ longs for. Oh, give us that heart of Christ through the preaching of the word. And so we pray, Father, that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, last week in Luke 22, we were exhorted to study the intercessory work of our Lord Jesus Christ, to study his prayers. Well, there is no better place to do that than in John 17, the high priestly prayer. We remember what McShane's exhortation was, his own resolution for his own soul to study the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. And here is a place to do it. He said, for our remembrance, that he was exhorting himself to do it because if he could hear right Christ praying for him in the next room, he said, I would not fear a million enemies. But he said, distance makes no difference. Christ is praying for me. And here on, in the high priestly prayer, we see such blessed prayers and petitions that the Lord Jesus Christ has for his people as the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. This is that prayer that Jesus Christ prayed on the night in which he was betrayed. His prayer of consecration of himself and preparation for his cross, but also consecration of his people, sanctification of his people and preparation of them for his departure. Now, blessedly, what is most blessed about this prayer is that the Holy Spirit by this prayer has given us a blessed window into heaven into the Holy of Holies, where the, the Lord Jesus Christ is behind the veil of heaven, so to speak, praying such things for us even now. He hasn't ceased to do these things. This is not a, a one-and-done kind of work of the Lord, as we heard last week. He continues to intercede for you and for me, the church of Jesus Christ, the victory of the gospel, our unity, our sanctification, on and on and on. He prays and prays and prays and prays. He prays, as we heard last week, that our faith fails not. What a blessed thing it would be if we would understand these things. It's a great gift from the Spirit. And long has this prayer given comfort to God's people because we see here how intimately the Lord Jesus Christ prays for us. We're not left to our own devices. He is there. He is praying for us. He gives us strength, but he also remembers us before the, uh, the, the throne of heaven. And you remember how the Levitical priests, right? They had the, the breastplate, so to speak, with the names of the tribes on them, the old high priests. Well, Jesus Christ has done the same with his own heart. He has put our names on his heart and he brings us as he brought Peter last Lord's Day into the holy place. And our great high priest, personally praying for us before God. This prayer is such a balm to the Christian uh, in need of comfort and consolation. Jesus prays for me. It was such a comfort that you remember that John Knox, as he lay dying on his deathbed at the end of his days, he told his wife, Margaret, go where I cast my first anchor, speaking of John 17. And he had this text read to him over and over and over again to strengthen him, to console him, and to move his affections to heaven, to cheer him. You know, you think about why it is. You remember, if you know any of church history, that this is the man who prayed mightily, right? Give me Scotland ere I die. And you remember how mightily the Lord answered that prayer. 
And the thing and the worry that can be in the heart of a man is what happens to the Church of Scotland when I die. But he takes comfort. No, the church is Christ's. And Christ prays. And when I go into glory, Christ will continue to pray a thousand years after John Knox is dead. And as for my own soul, my own soul knows that it has a sure passage to heaven on the deathbed because Christ is praying for me that my faith doesn't fail. And Christ is praying that I would be sanctified unto him. And so this is a tremendous prayer, brethren. And we ought to spend our days meditating on it. Far too rich for me to preach a single sermon on it for you this evening. Uh, I mentioned last week that the Westminster divine Anthony Burgess preached 145 sermons on this text. Every verse is so ripe and rich. A great meditation that will carry you to death. So our focus today, because this is such a vast prayer, will only be on Christ's petitions regarding the unity of the people of God. This is something every congregation, every, well, the people of God as a whole need to better understand the Lord's heart for what we call the communion of saints, for what we call the communion of saints. In other words, it's plain to see that laid on Christ's heart, even in these last moments in this prayer here, is his desire from the heart that we be one. You know, his prayer is evidence that he wants us to be one one people of God. And the question is, as we think on the will of the Lord, we covered this a little bit in our new members class, didn't we, for those of you there, that we pray according to the will of the Lord. And so we have to ask ourselves, is his desire in us? Do we have the desire of the Lord in us? Do we pray for these things? Here's a good question. When was the last time you and I prayed for the unity of God's people? Is it as near to us? just this congregation perhaps, but also the church universal. Have we prayed for the unity of the church? Christ prays for it. It's on his heart. Why is it not on ours? Instead, we are often racked and plagued with the factionalism and party spirit of 1 Corinthians, aren't we? This one's of that man. This one's of the other man. There's backbiting. There's scandal. There's division. There's a lack of forgiveness. There's bitterness amongst the people of God. We war with each other. But none of that is anything that Jesus has ever prayed for, nor is it anything that he will ever pray for. That is our flesh, and it must be put away. You know, the other thing that we take note of in this text, and I'll get to it, is until our churches are resolved to pray for unity and to labor for it, our churches will be sick. They will be sick, and there will be powerlessness in the gospel message that we proclaim. Christ says that a precursor to the power of the gospel going out in this prayer is that we be one, is that we be one. And so for the sake of Christ's kingdom, and as we seek to labor for it, we must pray for and labor for unity. And so in the hope that the church of Christ may be edified, exhorted, and encouraged to unity, our theme today is that we may be one, that we may be one. And we'll consider that theme under three heads. First is the petition for unity. Second is the power of unity. The third is the uh, pursuit of unity, all found on your bulletin. First, the petition for unity. Now, just for some context, before Christ crosses the brook Kidron to meet his cross, he entered into this great prayer. He prayed it in view of his ascension. He doesn't just pray it in view of the cross. He prays it in view of his ascension to commit his disciples to God's care. 
The prior chapters, as you well know, John 14 to 16 roughly, is his farewell discourse to them. He gives a discourse to them, preparing them doctrinally, practically, how they are to live as the people of God, how they are to be um, instructed in what they ought to do when he goes away. But he doesn't just instruct us, children of God, for your encouragement. He also takes those whom he instructs into the inner sanctum, which is what you see here, that we would persevere not merely by knowledge, but also by divine help. This is something that is key for us to know. We are not alone. The Lord doesn't leave us orphans. You know that. And he not only feeds us on the word, but he also prays that the word would take root. And in the first part of Christ's prayer, he consecrated his own self to God as our priest. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said to the Father, the hour is come. He, he, he says to the Lord, I recognize that my time has come. The cross is before me. My time to depart is here now. And he reminds the Father that all that he, the Father had called him to do as per their pact made in eternity past, the Lord Jesus Christ had accomplished. Everything that God the Father had made as a pact with God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ had accomplished for our salvation. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. What a tremendous thing that is to recognize. That our our salvation is won by Christ. He's done it all. And uh, And we recognize that from his own mouth. His own heart. He has finished the work that God has given him to do. There's no more work that is left. He has won our perfect righteousness and soon he will be on the cross to be a propitiation for our sins. Everything is accomplished to give us what? Eternal life. As thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Verse 2. What a wonderful thing to hear from the lips of our own Savior in prayer. What is eternal life? According to verse 3, oh, these blessed words. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, you might have the wrong impression of eternal life, friend. You might think, oh, it's these streets paved with gold, and it's it's a place with clouds and harps and all this other kind of nonsense in a lot of ways. But it's not. That's not eternal life at all. And maybe some of that, especially as we consider how heaven is described, just to give our weak faith something to maybe grab a hold of with pictures, is is really the blessing of heaven is what? That we know God. That we know God and we have communion with God. Children, that's heaven. That's heaven. We've considered that in our sermon on heaven, but that's heaven, to know God. And Christ says it here himself. This is the conception of heaven that you must have. This is the conception of eternal life that you must have. That we will see God, we will know God through that blessed vision of God, through Jesus Christ, the mediator whom thou hast sent. And that's why if you really say you want eternal life, you are to bring that to today. You are to know God. You are to pursue God because that is eternal life. And if you want, if you long for eternity, for heaven, then you would long for God now. And that's what you would pursue, who you would pursue. And this is what Christ 
has given you who believe. That's why he is the mediator here between God and man, to reconcile us to God. Not just to keep us from hell, but that we may know God, the only perfect blessed being there is. Well, that ends up being a sermon in itself, so I'll put that before you. And as the hour of Christ's glorification had come, the cross set before me, prayed, Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. The Son of God is glorified by his cross, by his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God. And, and he said, Father, I have done all that I had made a pact with you to do in heaven, in eternity past. Well, before there was even a heaven, in eternity past. I've made this pact. And so he says, glorify me according to the pact that we have made. And this is the Lord's petition of consecration of himself to the work of salvation. And something to note here in these is that his petitions for himself were quite short. They're not that many. Ultimately, most of his time, most of his heart was set on his apostles and on us, ourselves, showing that we are ever laid on the heart and mind of the Savior, and not one of us is forgotten, not one of our needs, not one of the things that is necessary for us ever escapes his heart, and he's always praying for those things that we need. And so in verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine this prayer of him as our high priest is discriminating, isn't it? He intercedes for his own. He intercedes for those of you who are his. He doesn't pray for the whole world as the mediator. He prays specifically and particularly for you because you are the fathers chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, before you ever drew breath, before you had parents in this world. You were his. And even in this time, even in this time, you're going to find out he was praying for you, even in that time, for a generation that is yet to be born. They belong to the Father and they belong to the Son. Verse 10, all mine are thine and thine are mine and I am glorified in them. May that be so. Here is the blessed unity of Father and Son. Both are one God. Children, you know from your catechism, right? They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. What is the Father's is the Son's. What is the Son's is the Father's, according to the divine nature. That is, uh, this is how we see they are not two gods, they are one God. All that is belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. They are equal in power and glory, not two gods. And so as God, the Father's nature is the Son's. The Father's knowledge is the Son's. The Father's perfections is the Son's. The Father's glory is the Son's. The Father's dominion is the Son's. And blessedly, the Father's people belong to the Son as well and vice versa. All mine are thine and thine are mine. He taught that in John sixteen fifteen. All things that the Father hath are mine. Now that would be blasphemous to say if the Son of God were not God that all that God possesses is his, would be blasphemous to say if he were not God. He is, according to the divine nature, very God of very God. But you might ask then, if you were keenly paying attention in verse 1, why did he say he had been given power over all flesh? I thought they were same in substance, equal in power and glory. Well, this is the son in the form of a servant. right? In the incarnation, we remember Philippians 2.7 in that. 
and how Augustine taught us to rightly divide how he speaks, either as the servant of the Lord, as the God-man, or according to the divine nature. As our mediator, right, he has to be given um, a people. He has to be given power and dominion. But in his divinity, he has all that the Father has and vice versa. Well, that, again, would be a different sermon, so I'll leave that there. Well, in verse 11, in view of his imminent departure, then Christ prayed for his apostles. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. And here is where we pick up our theme in earnest, that they may be one as we are. That they may be one as we are. That's an astonishing petition, friends. That the Father would, and this is the apostles he's speaking of, uh, particularly here, that the Father would keep Christ's apostles, that they would be one as the Father and the Son are one. What kind of unity is this that he would speak in this way? What kind of oneness? No, it's not, this, it's not that of the divine nature that we have spoken of. It's not as though uh, they would be like part of the Trinity. That would be blasphemous and absurd. Uh, they cannot be deified. No, this is a, a different sort of unity. It's understood from the petitions in the prayer itself. In the prayer, and this is where I want you to take note, there is a threefold unity that our Lord has asked would be ours. And this is the unity that we need. They are one, a unity of doctrine. Two, a unity of will. And three, a unity of affection. A unity of doctrine, a unity of will, and a unity of affection. Now that's a threefold chord that will make us one in Christ. And what does Ecclesiastes 4.12 say? For a threefold chord is not easily broken. If we have this chord of unity this threefold cord of doctrine, will, and affection, then the church will not easily be broken. And the church will go from strength to strength. This unity flows out of our shared union and communion with Jesus Christ. That is how it is nurtured. That is how it is fed. John 15, abiding in him as the vine and we are the branches. But I'd like to take and distinguish each strand of this cord and begin with the cord of doctrine. Christ intended that the apostles' unity, well, let me just first wrap up, uh, go back. You know, this is the kind of unity that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost have that can be ours, right? We cannot have anything of the divine nature, but they are certainly one in doctrine, they are certainly one in will, and they are certainly one in affection. And this is the kind of unity that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have that we are to have, not uh, the unity of the divine essence. So let's start with, as I mentioned, the doctrine, uh, the court of doctrine. Now, he intended the apostles' unity be based on the truth of the word. Verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, we are sanctified solely and wholly by the word of God. Without the word, there is no unity. Without the word of God, there is no unity for us, people of God. There's no basis for unity without the word of God. It would be foolish to even try to be unified without hearing the word of God. Now, you see this in the apostles. The apostles are a great illustration of this threefold cord, and we'll use them as examples because you see the prayer of Christ answered for his apostles. Remember how the apostles were unified in their doctrine. There's no conflict between the inspired words of Peter, James, Paul, and John. None. None whatsoever. In fact, what do we say of the Bible? It is apostolic. It contains the apostolic doctrine. 
which is the product of their unity of doctrine by the Holy Ghost. And so in our Bibles, we see Christ's petition greatly answered. In the Bible, you have opened before you that our faith, our unity, it comes from the, and centered on the word of God. If you're to have unity, you are to esteem the word of God. There is absolutely no unity that you can have with anyone that does not esteem the word more than their necessary food. Absolutely none. You cannot have unity then with papists or heretics like Mormons. Only those who seek to be reformed according to the word of God. Whether they call themselves reformed or not is actually besides the point. What they have to do is seek to reform themselves according to the word of God. For only the truth of the word can sanctify and unify us. You know, when, when we think of the word sanctify, actually, and we think about Christ showing a division between us and the word, to be sanctified by the word is to be divided, to be divided from the world. That's what that means. The word of God will separate us from the world and it will unite us to one another. It'll unite us to Christ. And that is what unifies us. And so what do we have to do, children of God? We must confess the same faith. We must confess the same truth. We must confess the same truth as one another to be united. You know this. Many today say they believe the Bible. But what does the Bible say and mean? What is the truth that it proclaims? We have so many differences, and there are many heretics even who say they believe the Bible. But what is the truth of the Bible? What does it teach? Well, this, children, and you must take note on this, is why we have a confession of faith. This is why we have a confession of faith. Our confession of faith is not a, a, a document to divide Christians, but to unify them. Right? It was meant, what was the original purpose of the Con Westminster Confession of Faith? To unify every Christian in the three kingdoms of Ireland, Scotland, and England. Britain, they would all be one under the same apostolic doctrine. So you might want to think of it this way. I don't know if you ever have, but the creeds and confessions of the Christian church, the Orthodox ones, are an answer to Christ's high priestly prayer. They are the result of Christ saying, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And what happens? We are set apart. We come and we confess a common faith and we are united by that. We are to confess the same faith once delivered to the saints. You know, the fundamentals of religion have been, um, have been determined by godly counsels and then kept and professed by the people of God that we would be one. In fact, when you think of the history of the great um, ecumenical councils, what was the point of them? It is to say, what should the Christian church be unified around? Who is Jesus? What is God? God is a spirit, right? Eternal, unchangeable. He is three persons in one God. This, these three persons being one God. All these formulations, they come out of godly men wanting and desiring unity for the people of God. That is why individuals and denominations ought to tread very carefully when it comes to unilaterally taking exception to or modifying or rejecting a creed or confession. Because these are unifying documents. And we are to ask ourselves, what will it happen to the unity of God's people if we start t tinkering with a common confession or common creed? What's going to happen? Schism. 
we have to ask ourselves, do we have, do we possess the light individually as, as individuals or as denominations to change confessions of faith? At the very least, we need to get together with our brethren as we determine. Now, these confessions are subordinate to the word of God. So it's not say, we're not saying that you cannot change them when they are in violation of the word of God. But let us have some humility and not do it unilaterally. So from the earliest days of the church, she had her creeds to bind us together, that we may be one in doctrine, united in the truth of the word. And if you've been around, you might have heard this ridiculous statement that doctrine divides, but doctrine actually unifies, because there's no basis of unity without common doctrine. Now that doctrine has to come out of the word of God, but we cannot just sort of blindly say, we'll just uh, sort of hold hands and be unified without a common doctrine doesn't work that way, brethren. No possibility. Consider the Nicene Creed. It unified the entire church and ejected heretics. So let's esteem confessionalism, rally around the Bible and a shared confession. That's the cord of doctrine. But that leads to the second cord, a unity of will or purpose. Found in verse 18. I also sent them into the world. What was the purpose? To send his apostles into the world. It's to take the gospel to every creature, to the ends of the earth, to bring all men to the obedience of faith, to disciple the nations. Christ sent the apostles with a great commission that he would be glorified. I am glorified in them. He sent them to preach, look unto Jesus and be saved all ye ends of the earth. He sent them to preach with one mission to unify them, to save many souls. He sent them to preach There is another king above Caesar, King Jesus. He sent them, as we read in Acts, in the book of Acts, to turn the world upside down. He sent them on mission so that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And they were to be united by this common purpose. And you and I ought to be united for this common purpose as well. Just think about this. How small, how petty, would all our divisions be if we understood that this is our common cause? They would seem ridiculous. It is ridiculous that we forget this is why we are bound together. If our hearts yearned for the glory of Christ, we would put away all of the bitterness, all the pettiness, all the rivalries, And we would link arm in arm and our hearts would yearn that the glory of the Lord, that men everywhere would say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want unity. Think on what Jesus sent his church to do and then do it together. You know, when we link arms on Friday night to bring the gospel to McKinney, don't all of our Divisions seem so petty in view of the message of Christ and him crucified. And it's almost ridiculous the kind of thing churches will argue over. The reason that we argue over these things is we forgot that we are sent on a mission together. That leads to the last cord that bound the apostles. And what a sweet cord it is, the cord of affection. You know, the Lord gave them a discourse on this right before his prayer in John 13. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. 
you know, they are to abide in their Savior. We are to abide in our Savior, and we love him, and so we are to love one another. That is the divine rule for us. This is an affection for each other, rooted and sourced in our union with Christ and love for Christ. Romans 12.5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. We are to have the bond of love Father and Son have for each other. That's a whole sermon in itself. Christ said in verse 23, Thou hast sent me and loved them, hast loved them as thou hast loved me. But we have to remember in all of our disputes or temptations to it and all of our temptations to, to be divided from one another is that every believer is dearly beloved of the Lord. And we can reserve for ourselves nothing nothing of any species of hatred towards one that God loves. We are to, what, what right do you or I have to be cross or against somebody that the father loves and sent his son to die for in their place? How can we despise one that the father loves? It pleases God when you love your brethren. And that is another great chord that will bind us together as we grow in that love. Now, just for, just for um, purpose of uh, showing you an example of this threefold chord, doctrine, will, and affection, that's seen all throughout the book of Acts. In Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. There you find the chord of apostolic doctrine, binding them together in their practice because proper doctrine leads to proper practice. Then in Acts 4, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. So here are the cords of affection and will binding them together. They were one heart and they were one soul with one will, one mission for the witness of Christ and great grace and power was upon them all. They were striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here you find in the book of Acts then, this is what you have to see in the book of Acts, great answers to Christ's own prayer. These things were not happening independently. Christ prayed these things for them and they were manifest. And in this blessed unity of his people, the church exploded from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and has come even to the ends of the earth here in Dallas. Why is there a church here? Because Christ prayed. For our encouragement then, brethren, he did not pray for the apostles only. He prayed for us too. He prayed for us too. In verse 20, he transitioned from the apostles to us. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me. These are remarkable words. Through their word. How did you come to believe? Through their word. Through the word of the apostles. In the Bible. We have been sanctified by the truth. Think of this. Why are you saved? Why are you sanctified apart for God? Because Jesus Christ prayed, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now you coming to faith is an answer to Christ's own prayer then. 
And so we see that all things that Christ prays for, as we heard last week, the Father hears him always. And so in the heavenly tabernacle, before the holy angels and at God's right hand, he prays unceasingly as well that they may be one. He prays this of this body and of the entire universal church. And what a terrible thing it would be if we would seek to undermine the prayers of Christ in our disunity, willfully so. May it never be said of you and me that we were working cross to the prayers of Christ when he prays for unity. Terrible thing, schism and disunity. May that never be. Well, if we understood the power of this threefold cord, we would seek it. Our second heading is the power of unity, and we'll go quicker through these next two headings. Now, the first thing we need to understand as we want to consider the power of unity is to remember this. We face a united opposition. There is united opposition towards us. The world is united together against us. Never forget it. There is a unity among the unbelieving. They are dead in sin and they are dead together. They have the same father, the devil. Theirs is the unity, as one man put it, of the graveyard. Theirs is the unity of the graveyard. And that's a terrible unity of hatred for us. Verse 14, I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Why are they united in their hatred of us? Because they hate our head, Jesus Christ. They hate him, and so they hate us. Two chapters prior, he taught the apostles. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. John fifteen eighteen through 19. Now see, Jesus not only teaches, but he also prays for us, knowing the hatred of the world. Children, do you recall the context, though, John 15, what I just read, comes in. He had said just prior to that, these things I command you that ye love one another. You are to love one another in view of the hatred that the world has for you. You know, we are to be bound by the cord of the love, of love for one another because the world hates us. They, blame, they hate our blessed Savior that we are bound to. Theirs is the dreadful unity of Psalm 2 too. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Now, have you ever asked the question, you always look at the world and you see these strange, strange confederacies, don't you? Like in our nation, you find that there are liberals, feminists, atheists, and Muslims that are bound together in Congress. And you ask, what in the world do these people have together? What does the transgender person have with the Muslim in common? You know what they have in common? A hatred of Christ. That's exactly what it is. And so if they're united in this way, right, the Lord is saying, what fools we would be to not be united to one another when we face a united opposition. It makes no sense that we remain divided in doctrine, will, and affection when the enemies of God rage against us. And the church that is divided will be devoured. The Lord knew it as he prayed. The question is, do we know it? And if we know it, we would rally around this need for unity with this threefold cord. But most of all, the power of unity is expressed so beautifully in the 21st verse. 
that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. And here is the key, especially as we consider Friday night, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. We don't often link evangelism with unity, though it is clear to see in the Bible that these things go together. And so please, for Christ's sake, I pray that you would imbibe this verse when it comes to our need for unity. That this ought to be close to your heart, that you would put aside whatever it is that you desire for yourself, but that you would be driven to the idea that the world may believe that thou hast sent Jesus Christ if we are one in him. What will happen when we are one? He says, the world will believe that Jesus is the Christ. That they would believe that we of all the peoples on the earth have the truth. Four chapters prior, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Our unity, our oneness, our single-minded pursuit of Christ and his glory, his purpose, particularly is shown in our love for one another as the body of Christ. And Christ says he will bless that witness to the world and he will bring great power in our evangelistic pursuits. It's a great witness that the apostolic gospel, grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone is truth when we are one. That the miracle of regeneration is not just understood but demonstrated in our conduct. It's a witness that the Son of God came to save sinners, even the chief. It's a witness that out of many he has made one body. A witness that there is another king, the King of Kings, King Jesus. You know, I've mentioned this to you all before, but one of the things that I always love taking away from our sit-in meeting is when we see brethren of nations that are at enmity with each other embrace as brothers. You know, the Japanese and the Chinese and the Indian and the Pakistani and the Scottish and the Irish and the English and the African and the Israeli and the American all embrace one another in love. What a witness that is. What is impossible, absolutely impossible for the United Nations is possible with God. Is it any wonder then that as the church has splintered and fragmented that her witness has been weakened? And the apostolic power is lost to us because our unity is not what it ought to be. Yes, there are real differences, especially as we go outside this congregation amongst Reformed groups. But if we simply squabble and we don't pray and we don't seek after unity, it will never happen, will it? If we don't seek after the same purpose and same brotherly affection for each other, what are we doing? You know, our disagreements are not to be cast down, but... Really what we're to do is to say, brother or sister, let us come in agreement on the word of God. Let's work on this. Not brother or sister. You see this all the time. It's so odious. I'm better than you because I am right. And I'm not going to interface with you to bring you along uh, to be sanctified by the truth. Instead of we ought to be saying to one another, the Lord has prayed for us, brethren, that we be one. How about we be one? We need to not cease striving together until we are of one mind, will, and affection. And that's the doctrine of Reformed Catholicity, isn't it? That we seek to be one body under the word of God. And then the witness to the world will come with power. And the world will not break this threefold cord of unity. So brethren, as Reformed Christians, let me just say, the weakness of the church presently 
is not just her doctrine, not just her worship, not just her lack of evangelical zeal, not just in the antinomian spirit that has gripped so many uh, in the church. As a reformed body, we focus on these things. We ought to focus on these things. Rightly so, these must be reformed. But how often have we spoken of the powerlessness we have because of a lack of unity? Should that too not be reformed? For when the church was at her strongest, what do you find? Great unity, whether in the patristic era or in the reformed era. And it's high time, brethren, we remember we have an entire chapter in our confession, the 26th chapter. I wonder how many of us remember what the 26th chapter is. It's called the communion of saints. We confess saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion as God offereth opportunity is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Westminster, the assembly, understood out of the word of God that it is for the well-being of the church that we be united and for our witness to the world. For further Sabbath reading, you can read chapter 26 in its fullness and its scriptures. Well, let's conclude our time with our final heading, the plea of unity. Now, I want you to hear a man that was moved in his heart by, the, by Christ's prayer being effectual in his heart. It's the apostles' plea in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In John 17, Christ pleads for this thing. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Christ's minister pleads to you and me on God's behalf. This is the plea of the scripture. I beseech you, brethren, that you all speak the same thing, meaning doctrine, and there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You know, when the Bible shows the ministers of God pleading, it says that that's God uh, beseeching us through them. We have to see that this is the exhortation of the Lord. And brethren, you have to ask the question, what is the opposite of unity? It starts with an S, schism. That's a rending, that's a tearing of his body. It's a grave sin. We must never forget schism is a great evil. And we must all begin with our local congregations. Here at DRPC, you are to be of one mind, one will, one affection, one heart for each other. You're not to be splintered into groups and factions. You are to be one with each other. And let us never forget that the devil hates this congregation, hates every true congregation, not just ours. And he will tempt you and me too to disunity, to walk away from one another, to not seek to be bound together. He hates this church. He hates every true church because he hates Christ's crown. He hates the words. Listen, oh, I can imagine how the devil feels about these words. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. So he's going to seek to perform his mischief in a place like this. And we are not to be his pawns doing the work of the devil. There will be congregational meetings 
There will be decisions we will have to make on future officers. There will be decisions even maybe on future meeting places in God's will, how to spend resources, where to labor, and so on. And in every case, there will be the devil right there to seek to tear you and me apart. So even if we disagree on the will of the Lord, uh, we are to make sure we never lose the threefold cord. That we... Even if we find ourselves on other sides of a matter, you know, assuming it doesn't violate the word of God, of course, you know, things that we seek the Lord's will, should we go here, should we minister in this place, you know, those things that we plead with the Lord for wisdom and won't go in wisdom, well, those things will sometimes have us at cross ends, and some of us um, may not decide to, like, the, this, the, I think the only time that the congregational meeting has never been unified has been uh, the choice of this meeting place. Um, it was a majority, clear majority. But um, other than that, we've had uh, essentially lockstep unified decisions. Well, even when decisions are uh, are not unified, united or unanimous, that's the word I want, um, we have to be unified. And we have to walk after that saying, this is the will of the Lord. Just as uh, the apostles did when they chose Matthias. This is the will of the Lord. Let's move forward from here. Let us never lose the threefold cord. And so we are to strengthen these three cords uh, to prepare ourselves for the days of testing. We are to never give up the cord of doctrine. Absolutely not. We are to continue to develop it and grow in it and that we would look at our confession of faith in the Bible and that we would say, yes, we believe the same things. And we do have a shared confession and I don't think we struggle with that so much as with the other two cords, affection and will. Don't let the love, speaking of affection, don't let the love here between you all grow cold. Think on each other fondly. Bring each other into the secret place, even as Christ brings you onto his breastplate. Bring them with brotherly affection. And when you feel slighted by a brother or sister for any reason, go to your brethren in love. If you can't cover the offense in love, rebuke them in love. Speak the truth in love wanting and desiring reconciliation. Schism begins in the heart. It begins with the affections growing cold. So before it breaks into action, so the first motion of schism in your heart against a brother is to be repented of, for it is properly sin. Then, after the cord of affection, in this place, seek to serve together. Strengthen the will of purpose. Uh, the court of will or purpose, Philippians one twenty seven, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving what? Together for the faith of the gospel. That is the calling of this body, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Together. You all have a part in that, not all as preachers. You have one preacher. Well, you'll have two shortly, Lord willing. But together as a body, supporting the work of the ministry and the witness of Christ. Again, on Friday night, we will go out in a common purpose. Let us go together, if you can come, to preach Christ and Him crucified. Then we are to seek unity also. That was our body, and we could talk more on that. With communion coming up in a few weeks, we will probably talk about that some more. But we also are to seek unity outside of this local body with our presbytery, our denomination. You know, we recently have had a couple of picnics with local congregations in the RPCNA. Blessed thing that is to go and meet our brethren. Be one mind and one heart when you meet them. 
And uh, you remember that Christ prayed for the apostles first. There's something in that. You are to pray, and I am too, for our ministers and elders. Remember, we talked about why Peter was a high-value target last week and why the Lord Jesus prayed for him, that his faith not fail, because uh, the impact of Peter's faith failing would be uh, quite drastic on the whole church. And when the elders and ministers are not united, then the church falls into squabbles. And the church starts to fracture and rupture. And suddenly there's parties here who are the conservatives, who are the liberals, who are the moderates, and so on and so forth. We don't want that. Pray that the men of God would be one with this threefold cord. And we must pray that we would be united with our other brethren outside the RPCNA. You know, we can't have intimate bonds in doctrine with all. Not yet, anyhow. We know it'll happen one day. But we are to still strive and, and pray for these things. And where we can, without compromise, labor together, let us labor together with those who hold the gospel. One of the reasons why we have this sort of North Texas um, group with uh, um, the PCA and the Reformed Baptist congregation is because we can, if nothing else, preach the same gospel. And we can evangelize together. You know, it's quite interesting, though, that even amongst those of us with very close theology, if you look online, the church just bickers among the closest tribes. Oh, you're of the free Presbyterians. You're of the free church. You're of the RPs. You're of the uh, whatever, right? We share so much, and it's so strange, right? But that's the devil at work and our flesh at work to split us apart. So we are to seek together to be one people of God. And that kind of unity comes from prayer. And it won't happen until you pray and I pray too, to pray as Christ prays. You know this is the will of God for your unity. So pray for it. And what happens when you pray for it? God hears, God blesses. And from prayer, you are to seek peace and pursue it by the grace of God. Ephesians 4, 3 to 6. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You can't read that text without reflecting on the word one. One, one, one. What do you share in common? Everything that matters, brethren. One body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in us all. Really, what more can be said if that doesn't say it all? And how petty then our divisions seem. Yes, they are real, but they must be sought to be healed. What a sin schism is. So I have one last thing, one last question. Our time is long gone. Are you united together to the graveyard? Or are you united together in Christ? Where is your unity found? Individually, I mean. What are you united to? The graveyard? Those who are dead in sins and trespasses? Or are you united to Christ? Is your communion, in other words, with the dead or the living? Are you in Christ? Or are you not in Christ? Are you with the people of God? You, friend, are to be united to Christ. That you might have eternal life that you may know God, that you may have God. When you look on 
Christ here as the great high priest, we find that we are saved because of his work and his prayer. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Why? Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Why are you going to be saved? This is why John Knox reflects on the prayer of Christ, isn't it? I am saved to the uttermost because Christ intercedes for me. I am saved to the uttermost because Christ intercedes for me. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church because Christ intercedes for us. No wonder Knox wanted this prayer read to him as he passed into glory. Even on the deathbed, Christ was praying for his servant that he would save him to the uttermost. Well, for us then, the exhortation is to pray for our unity, especially as the Lord's table is coming upon us in a few weeks. May you be united together as the people of God here because this is Christ's will for you. He prays for it. It will happen in his time and we will say great things happen in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ as these prayers come to pass. May it be our desire as well. Amen. May God bless our meditation. Let us arise for prayer of Abel. O Lord, our God, answer the prayer of thy Son that we would be one, even as Father and Son are. O Lord, if there be divisions among us, thou knowest. Put them away, O God. Grant to us the ministry of reconciliation that we would reconcile men to God through Christ, but also that we ourselves would be reconciled one to another. Lord, give us a sense of the heinousness of schism and disunity in the body of Christ. We pray that in the years to come, there would be a great outpouring of the Spirit, that we would enjoy great bonds of unity and fellowship and communion, that the church of Jesus Christ in this land, especially, but not just in this land, would come together as one with this threefold cord of doctrine, of affection and will. Lord, bind us together. Lord, give us the desire of the Son of God's heart. And may the witness of the church be emboldened and strengthened as we go out as one people of God. Oh, forgive us, O oh Lord, for any of the defects in the service today and to give us the heart of Christ. May we be one, even as thou and thy Son are one. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.